The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Hi, everybody, and thanks for joining me for the show today. I have a great conversation in store for you, so I'm very happy that you can listen in. As always, I'm shocked, amazed, and grateful that anybody is listening, so I definitely appreciate it. And of course, if you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the podcast, like, share, and review. And even if it's not such a great review, that's okay. I'll read it anyway. I just love the interaction. So I appreciate you joining me for this today. So the word tribalism is in the news a lot lately. It's in our consciousness. It's certainly been in my consciousness. Over the past few years, we've seen people picking their tribes and denouncing others who aren't a part of their own particular tribe. And I am as guilty of this as anybody. I see people who identify as part of my tribe and others that don't share my beliefs as outsiders. And these people, of course, I've been furiously deleting from my Facebook friends list, uh, which is probably not the best way to handle it. I fear the members of the other tribe. So there is fear there. I fear them as people who are hateful, judgmental, stupid, dangerous to society and to the planet. And then on further examination of of this, I see myself as just as intolerant and judgmental as the other side. And I'm sure my beliefs are right, as much as the people I consider the other are sure in their beliefs. So I I see I'm just as guilty of this as everybody, and I'm trying to come to grips with this. And I've been spending some time reading a really amazing book that's been opening my eyes on this very subject called Judaism Without Tribalism, A Guide to Being a Blessing to All the Peoples of the Earth. And while I am not Jewish per se, actually my husband is Jewish, but you know, neither here nor there, I guess. I was brought up with a Catholic upbringing personally, but after reading a lot of this book, I feel that I want to call myself Jewish in the way that the author describes it. I'm I'm really loving this book. Rabbi Rami Shapiro is an award-winning author, educator, and spiritual guide to many people. Along the way, he's taken bodhisattva vows in Zen Buddhism, become a mason in the Scottish Rite, been initiated into the Ramakrishna Order of Vedanta Hinduism, also joined the Theosophical Society, published three dozen books. So he he, he knows a lot. I'm, I'm anxious to get his wisdom today. He currently co-directs the One River Foundation. You can find out about that at oneriverfoundation.org. And he's a contributing editor at Spirituality and Health Magazine, where he's a regular columnist and hosts the magazine's podcast. And you can find out more at spiritualityandhealth.com. Find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. And I'm really happy to welcome him to my podcast today. So thank you for joining me. Diane, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to talk with you. I know we had scheduled this previously a few months back, and then there was a lot of change and transition 
uh, in my world. And I realized from your fabulous publicist that somehow our conversation about this actual book fell through the cracks. So I really wanted to remedy that situation and have you on here today to talk about this because I think it's really important and it, it brings up a lot of important questions. And I really think that this book could be called Living Without Tribal Tribalism. Maybe I don't know if you want to change the title. It's probably too late. Living Without Tribalism. And you can be Jewish if you want to, <laughs> <laughs> if you choose. And so many things you wrote about just opened my eyes and got me thinking. And I want to spend some quality time with this book as you advised when we, when we first start reading it. So I've, I've actually read most of it and I really want to go back and, and spend time with the chapters and, and really, really get into it and soak it up. So were you called to write this in light of our current social and political climate, which I'm sure had, had some influence. And I mean, what was the turning point that you took pen to paper to really start putting your thoughts down for this book? You know, I've been writing about Jewish texts and themes for decades. But lately, because of this ethno-nationalist, fascistic, you know, uh, virus that that's, it's, it's really a global pandemic of fascism that is perverting uh, ethnicities and, and political parties and religions everywhere around the globe. I felt I wanted to work through what would a Judaism without tribalism look like? And, and we need to, need to make a distinction in the very beginning between tribe and tribalism, right? Because I, I don't have a problem with tribe. I mean, Jews are a tribe. Your husband is part of a tribe. And whether he's an active member or not an active member, whether he agrees with some of what you know rabbis say and disagrees with, it doesn't really matter. He's still part of the tribe. If you think of it as an extended family with you know, a shared story, but not much else, right? I mean, Jews are multi-ethnic, multi-racial. Uh, we have variety of, of uh, cuisines and music and languages. It's not a fixed thing or a monolithic, monolithic thing. But tribalism, you know, you, you mentioned that you caught yourself, you know, denouncing the other tribe. Yes. And that's tribalism. When we denounce the other as evil, as wicked, as you know, all the things that you had said, uh, that's tribalism. And it's infecting Judaism, but not only Judaism. So as a rabbi, I, I chose to write about it from the Jewish perspective. But, and, and I don't mean to go on and on here, but um, I don't know when people will actually be listening to this, but uh, when, Zalman, when Salman Rushdie was attacked um, on Friday, that but last the last Friday in, in August was it? Anyway, I, I was at the same place the Friday before, and um, you know, the Chautauqua is this wonderful place for learning and sharing and growing and all those. I mean, it sounds a little trite, but it's actually true. It's been around for 125 years or so, and they've never had anything like this. And this was an act of pure tribalistic hatred. And the fact that it can happen there shows how ingrained it is in not just the human psyche, but, but the civilizational um, zeitgeist of, of humanity at the moment. I and mean, it's a really scary time. And I think that 
that Jews need to speak up for Judaism without tribalism. Christians need to speak up for Christianity without tribalism, Muslims without tribalism, you know, because you can go through the whole list because you can see tribalism in all these religions becoming more and more dominant. Now, yeah, I mean, I, I could go on forever and then I'm giving a talk and not having a conversation. No, so I, I agree. Stop, but... and, and because this frightens me so deeply and I fear that there is a real danger in not learning from our history, not learning from our past mistakes. The fact that so many younger people in the younger generation actually believe the Holocaust didn't happen, that it's false, and that we're, I'm seeing shadows of that repeating itself. And I certainly saw that January 6th when I was, a, I mean, I was shocked and horrified, and as were most of my friends, to see swastikas and Nazi helmets amongst the people there and how they were so convinced that they were doing this in the name of their God or whatever. It, it was just horrifying to me. And I'm really afraid that we're going back, you know, we're losing rights. There, there's all of that happening too. So I'm really afraid in my lifetime that we could see another Holocaust. And that's why I think it's so important what you're writing about and, and that we should really take it seriously. And, and that's why I wanted to throw myself into the fire as well, because I'm angry, I'm triggered, I'm seeing those people as the enemy. And I, I think that's part of the problem. And I, I have to check myself as well. Yeah. But then just to have some compassion on those of us who are so frightened and, and, and upset by the other side, um, they are the enemy in a sense, right? They're not yes. my enemy personally, but they're the enemy of liberty. They're the enemy of egalitarianism. They're, the, they're, they're uh, misogynistic. They're you know, racist. You know? I mean, not you could go, well, they're good people, and, but, you know, but really the ideology that's being espoused by um, the right wing, whether you're talking about right wing in the United States or in Hungary or in Israel or in India, where, wherever you want to go, the ideology seems to be global. It's based on a fear of the other, however the other is defined. And that fear is used to generate violence against the other and anyone who seems to be supportive of any ideology that honors, that respects someone who's different than them. So it's very difficult for me to just say, well, you know, you know, we should, we're all, we're all human. We're all manifestations of the divine. Let's not, let's just get along. I don't want to get along with those people who are destroying the planet uh, politically, religiously, environmentally, you know, the, all of it. So, so the, the question for, for people like us is how do you deal with the fact? How do you, how do you oppose this without becoming tribalistic yourself. Yes. And I mean, that's a question I wrestle with all the time. You know, Jesus says, love your enemies. But he doesn't say, don't have any enemies. <laughs> right? So right. Jesus says, no, Turn you got enemies, cheek. but you're going to have to deal with them in a way that is loving, whatever, you know, however that might be understood. I would say it means you, you treat them with respect, even though they're, you know, they're the enemy. You don't go and murder them in the street. You don't do some of the things that people are calling for 
uh, on the right vis-a-vis -vis the left or even the moderates. Um, but you still have enemies and there's still opposition. I, I in no way can find common ground with people who are really rabid anti-Semites, racists, um, misogynists. You know, I just, there, there's no common ground. But I can still remind myself that they are holy beings, you know, because my theology is that everything is a manifesting of God. So they're also a manifesting of God, but they're like God's shadow side. And it has to be controlled. It has to be managed. Um, you can't do away with it, but you certainly don't have to acquiesce to it or even make peace with it. There's a struggle there that we need to, to honor. I don't know if that's making any sense. I'm wrestling no, with it well, myself. No, well, it does but. to me because I, I I feel I'm in that space that on on the one hand I want to have compassion and try to understand how they came to that place to believe what they believed, and and I may never be able to comprehend how that happened. But yet I still agree with you that you ha you have to take a stand, or you do have to pick a side in some sense, right? I, I think you do. But I think you can do it in a way that isn't abusive, tribalistic. You can pick a tribe. I mean, my tribe is clearly the liberal tribe. Um, but I don't want to see the end of the, the individuals who are on the illiberal side. I just don't want to see them in power. You know? Yes. Um, but you, know, you, you raise an interesting thing about it. I'm trying to understand where they're coming from. One of the most... I don't know if the word is fun, but one of the most interesting things that one can do, or that certainly I, I try to do, is find out why you believe what you believe. I mean, in the back of my mind, I'm saying, why do you believe the crazy things you believe? But I don't say that. Yes. I just want to know why why do you believe that? Why do you believe that that you know God wants um, the 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 mother to die? rather than have an abortion to save her life. Why would God want that? And then, you know, it, it, and it always comes back to religion, almost always, I think. And there's a theological position, which I don't accept. But at least you can put that on the table. One of the things that's happening with regard to the whole abortion debate is that we're not being honest about the debate. There's a reason why you think, why one thinks that um, a human being is a person at conception. Is, has a soul at conception. That's a Christian position, not the only Christian position, but that's a Christian position. It's a theological position. And to run the country based on a theological position violates the very separation of church and state that, you know, Jefferson and Madison talked about. But we don't put the theology on the table, which I think is a mistake. Uh, some people are pushing back, especially liberal Jews, Orthodox Jews have their own issues. But there are liberal Jews in Texas and other places who are saying, look, this violates my religious freedom because my religion, Judaism, says that abortion, uh, you, you always um, side with the mother. And, and so abortion is not only legal, moral, but also obligatory to save the life of the mother. Um, and then you can debate what's life, is it physical, is it mental, is both, you know, there, there's all kinds of room for debate. But the idea is to say it's a complete ban that violates my 
the practice, the free practice of my religion. So anyway, it, it gets pretty complicated, but religion is at the heart of it. And I think we need to talk about that, but we're ill-equipped to talk about that. Well, that's why I hope everybody picks up this book. Seriously. Me too. Because even <laughs> in the But, but in I don't the care first... about the philosophy. Pick it up, <laughs> buy it. Don't pick it up. Buy there's it. There's other reasons. Yeah. Buy it as a gift for somebody. <laughs> then you're doing two good things. There you go. Um and I loved how you broke down the the difference of religion at its best and religion at its worst. And and you were kind of getting into that a little bit just now, where I, I completely agree with you on on all of those points where why are we more concerned? Like you say in the book, a lot of times we're more concerned with the afterlife than the life that we're living right now. Where are we going to go when we die? Well, who cares about that? We're dead. We're here right now. You know, the same could apply to why do we care about a, a life of cells or conception at that point, which you said, of course, can be debated when the life of the mother is at stake, the life now, right now, that should be important. So I wanted to ask you this question because this comes up a lot in in my world of the definition of spiritual but not religious. You know, there's a whole group of people now that are categorizing themselves in that way. And I love how you did that in the first chapter, kind of in dissecting religion at its best, at its worst. Would you be able to do a similar thing of people that consider themselves spiritual and not religious? Can you can you be spiritual and not religious? Oh, absolutely. I, it's not a term that I use, spiritual but not religious. And the reason I try not to use it is it's it's negative. You know, it's it's like I'm spiritual but not religious. You know, it's it's there's a um, I'm trying to cover myself. I'm trying to I I'm spiritual but don't think I'm religious. And I, I'd like a positive term. So I wrote a book years ago called Perennial Wisdom for the Spiritually Independent. And I like this, the term spiritually independent better because it's completely positive. And, and it's like being politically independent. I like some ideas of the Greens and I like some ideas of the Democrats and the Republicans and the natural law parties and whatever else you, you happen to have. I, I pick and choose to create my own sense of, of what I'd like, what I pursue politically. Religiously independent suggests, and the way I use it means that I can find brilliance, wisdom, both the, uh, theologically, but also in spiritual practice in every religion. Not that they're all the same, but that they all have their own emphases. And there's some things that, I, that you find in Christianity that you don't find in Judaism that you wouldn't want to put into Judaism because it, that's, it, they're two different religions. But you can, as a human being, benefit from the study of and engagement with, um, in this case, you know, some aspect of Christianity or another. So being politically independent means that you're open to the wisdom of the world's religions in general. And then I tie it to the notion of perennial wisdom, because while I do think all religions are, each religion is unique. They don't worship the same God. They don't say the same things. But that's only true on the surface. You know, so, so the Jewish God doesn't have a son. The Christian God isn't a God without a son. Uh, the Christian God had nothing to do with the Bhagavad Gita, but Lord Krishna is nothing without the Bhagavad Gita. So we have these different concepts of God and they're 
we should honor them. You don't have to believe in them, but you say, okay, that's what, that's their God. But when you look at the mystic tradition, when you engage with the great mystics, Julian of Norwich in Christianity or Meister Eckhart or Ramakrishna in Hinduism, you could go through a whole list. But, but if you take a look at the mystics, the great mystics in any religious tradition, they agree, though their languages are unique to their own culture, the points they make are points upon which they agree. And there's just four of them. I mean, the first one is mystics all know that everything that exists is a manifesting of a single non-dual reality. You can call it God, you can call it Brahman, you can call it nature, mother, whatever you want to call it. But there's just one of it and it manifests as everything the way an ocean manifests as all of its waves. The second point is we humans have an innate capacity to awaken to this reality. So in Judaism, one of the words for it is, is uh, chayut, it means uh, aliveness. So you can awaken to the aliveness and feel this interconnectedness with all life. That's number two. Number three is when you have that experience, you're called to uh, be a blessing, like it says in the cover of the book, but it comes from Genesis 12, 3, be a blessing to all the families of the earth. The publisher made it more anthropocentric, procentric, uh, where the Bible is more global, all the families, human and otherwise. Uh, and then the fourth point is awakening to the divine or whatever you're going to call it, but awakening to aliveness and living as a blessing, meaning living in such a way as to enhance the life of others making the world a little better for your having been born into it. Those two things are comprise the highest purpose of human life. I think you can find that in every religious tradition among the mystics. And I've had, I would say deep, but let's just say uh, I, I've had lots of experience with mysticism in different traditions. And my teachers have all uh, ended up, I think, saying the same thing. Um, so if we're gonna if we're gonna move beyond tribalism, we need to move deeper into mysticism. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. I love that. And I, and thank you for explaining it and distilling it so succinctly in those four points. Um, it, it makes total sense to me. And then one of the things I was going to ask you is because you know, these things, you're a smart guy, you've been to all these societies. Uh, the, you know, the one thing that I was going to say kind of ties everyone together would be the golden rule, right? Do unto <laughs> others. And there's got to be different interpretations of that through every religion or Thing that you've studied, right? Yeah, absolutely. Golden rule, the earliest uh, articulation of the golden rule comes from Confucius, and he put it in the negative. Don't, you know, what's, I, I don't know exactly how he put it in the Chinese translating, but he put it in the negative. Rabbi Hillel in the first century uh, put it, uh, you know, in, in, introduced it to Judaism, and, and he also put it in the negative. 
what is hateful to you, do not do to somebody else. And then Rabbi Jesus comes on the scene uh, a generation later and he puts it in the positive, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Every religion has this, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Taoism. I mean, every religion has a form of this. So the ethic is universal. Now, where you get into trouble is when you then, okay, you have the golden rule as this core idea in your tradition, does your tradition live it 100%? Well, of course, no, no one lives it 100%. But if you go through the various religions with the golden rule in mind, you see that they all espouse it, but they all violate it. And many of them, if not all of them, I'd have to re you know do a little more research to be categorical about it. But many, if not most of them, violate the golden rule when it comes to women because the religions are dominated by men and when they're saying well what's hateful to me you know what's hateful to me i won't do to you but they're thinking of other men because what woman wants to be a second-class citizen what woman wants to be denied uh you know full enfranchisement in in her uh civilization i mean she may be culturally attuned to not desiring full enfranchisement but Really, if she had the option, um, most people would, would go for, for full enfranchisement. And, and the golden rule would seem to demand it. But, you know, especially when it comes to women, the religions don't, don't do that. They're still patriarchal, which is why perennial wisdom and the mystics, though the mystics can still get caught up in patriarchy, but perennial wisdom is post-patriarchy. It's, it's not about that. It's completely egalitarian. It sees all beings, male and female, as equal expressions of the divine with equal rights and opportunities. You know, it's, it's very, very liberal in, in, that, in that sense. But every religion has this golden rule and every religion ought to be challenged regarding it. I mean, where in an Islam defined by the golden rule, and there are other ways of looking at Islam, but in an Islam defined by the golden rule, do you get this guy running on stage trying to assassinate Salman Rushdie. I mean, you don't. Um, right. There are, you know, there's the fatwa that maybe he's still dealing with from Iran, uh, which was, you know, established before he was born. But mostly there's just fear and anger that religion stokes and they aim it at somebody. So in this case, it was Rushdie. But um, that's not the golden rule. That's patriarchy, that's power, that's a, a poisonous, well, that's tribalism and the poison right, the that worst it parts. into a culture. Right. The worst, worst, worst parts of religion, like you, you describe in the book. And I just wonder where people that are, are taking things that were written thousands of years ago in such a literal sense, rather than distilling the truths, like taking the main idea of the golden rule, I wonder what you think about what will happen 100, 200 years from now. Who will be the mystics that people will read? Or will they still read those thousands of years old text? Will my guess is, yeah, my guess is the texts are, are really timeless. They've lasted so long, but maybe the quality of our reading will improve. So just for example, because you had mentioned it uh, almost you know, under, under your breath, um, you know, turn the other cheek. You mentioned that earlier. Well, 
Jesus, and we don't know what Jesus said because all we have is, you know, secondary material. There's no video, there's no audio tape of what Jesus said. But let's assume that Jesus said, turn the other cheek. What does that actually mean? What did that actually mean 2,000 years ago, as opposed to how people read it today? Well, certainly today, depends on which Christian camp you're in, but some camps have, you know, turn the other cheek just so I can smash it with another hammer. But when Jesus says it in the context of, first of all, he's a Jew, he's living under Roman occupation in uh, Roman-occupied Jewish Palestine, uh, and he's a mystic, and he's dealing with the culture of his time. So in Jesus's time, uh, you know, in the actual text, he says, if they slap you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek, turn the left cheek. Why be so specific? Why not just say, like we say, oh, turn the other cheek. He doesn't say that. He's specific. If they hit you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. So why? The reason is because in Jesus's time, it was law, you know, it was legal for Roman soldiers to walk up to any Jew and smack them backhanded uh, uh, you know, in the, in the face. And because most people are right-handed, they would smack them on the, with their right hand, the back of their right hand, on their right cheek. You could just do that. You can get away with it. It's, there's nothing you can do. So Jesus doesn't say, if they hit you on the right cheek, you know, get a sword and go kill them. He says, turn the other cheek. Why? The reason is because in Roman law, hitting someone on the left cheek with an open hand, because that's how you hit them. You know, if you're going to slap someone on the on their left cheek, you're going to do it with an open right hand. Doing that is an act of anger between equals. So Jesus is saying, if they hit you on the right cheek, treat you like an animal, turn the other cheek and dare them to hit you again. But now they have to do it and raise your status to being equal to the Roman. And they can't, they won't. And, and he's got a number of those things, go the extra mile, um, he's working with Roman occupation law and showing how to resist it in a nonviolent way. It's brilliant. But when we read it 2,000 years later, we just think, all right, turn the other cheek, don't get upset. But that's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying don't get upset. He's saying resist, but do it in a way that might be more effective than going to war. I mean, the Jews went to war twice against Rome. They lost both times. So he didn't know that. It hadn't happened yet. But um, he was smart enough to realize you're not going to win a battle uh, against Rome. But you can resist in other ways that elevate your humanity. Um, and that's maybe even more radical than, than going to war. I like that explanation. I've never heard that about yeah, turn the other um, cheek. I didn't make that up. That uh, If people are interested in putting Jesus in context, there's lots of ways of doing that. Amy Jill Levine, who's a wonderful professor at um, of New Testament studies in uh, Vanderbilt in Nashville, near where I live. Uh, this specific interpretation comes from a Christian um, historian, Walter Wink, W-I-N-K. So the stuff is out there. It's just, it's not preached. It's not taught. You have to find it. Right.
you have to dig for it. And when you, when you do, you find out these amazing nuggets of information. It's yeah. so interesting. So many great points in the book. I mean, this, this could go on for a long time, but I, w- I won't torture you with a, a torturous, you know, two hour long, uh, picking apart of everything, but it just so many great insights that I got from the book. And I really loved your explanation of God with a lower G and God with a capital G. And I definitely want to be more connected to the God with the capital G. And also in your analogy of the ocean and the waves, that that really hit home because I I, I want to be a part of that. And and also with the ocean and waves, you kind of described it in the belief of of life after death, which I I thought that was so interesting too. I'm like, wow, okay. Because everybody's so all the different religions are attached to where you're gonna go after, somewhere in heaven or or whatever. But what would you say? So I guess just can you describe the God with the capital G, the ocean and the waves? How can we yeah. be a part of that? I mean, there there are the brand name gods. Those are gods with a lower case G. And those are the gods of specific religions that, that um, you know, prejudice those religions. They're, they're in favor of those of those religions. So the Jewish God chose the Jews and the Christian God saves the Christians. And, you know, the Muslim God gave... Uh, the Quran to Muhammad, so so they're they're all limited to their tribe, their tribal gods. But the god with the capital G is the god of the mystic, the god that has no name, that is, from my perspective, rooted in my own experience, my own con- experience of contemplative practice. God with a capital G is reality itself, uh, which. I like the way St. Paul references it in the book of Acts. Oh, I think maybe it's chapter 10, no, chapter 17, verse 28, I think. But you'd have to look it up. But in the book of Acts, St. Paul talks about this God with a capital G. And he says, speaking of this God, and he references it as that in, in whom we live and move and have our being. That's like the ocean and every wave exists in the ocean, you know, in, in which it has its, um, you know, its, its very existence. So when mystics talk about God, they're not talking about the brand name God of their specific religion. They may use the language, but they're pointing to something beyond that. And that's the trick, right? To point something beyond that. So I'm not interested, I mean, as an academic, as a you know, someone who's just curious about religion, I'm interested in the lowercase g gods. But personally, I'm only interested in the capital G God because that God is me, that God is you, that God is uh, the technology through which we are communicating, that God is everything. So the realization of that God, and I mentioned before, you can call it aliveness, is that all life is a manifesting of this aliveness. and realizing that I feel this kinship for all living things and we'll treat them accordingly in like the golden rule. The ocean and the wave metaphor is, I think, I mean, it's my go-to metaphor. It's a Hindu metaphor, but it speaks so clearly as close as an analogy can get. It speaks so clearly to the truth that the ocean is infinite and the waves are nothing but the ocean. And yet they're not all of the ocean, right? So 
you know, a wave, the ocean is all of any given wave, but any given wave and even the sum of the waves are not all of the ocean. The ocean is always greater still. So that this theology is called panentheism. Everything is in pan, in, and uh, theos, uh, God. So everything is in God, but God is greater still. So we just, I don't know if anyone's been doing this, but I've been binging on the web telescope photographs, you know, and what I'm looking at is I'm looking at parts of the ocean I've never seen before, right? I'm looking at the divine happening. Uh, you know, it's you're always looking back into, into time when you do a telescope. So I'm looking at the unfolding of the divine and I'm part of that unfolding. And to me, it's just this awe-inspiring thing because I'm part of it. Because of the way photo photography works, it looks like I'm looking at something external to myself. But in fact, I'm just looking at my greater self, the part of me that's the ocean that, that's so much bigger than me. As far as uh, what happens when you die? I mean, the question is, where does a wave go when it hits the shore? And the shape of the wave is gone forever. Rami, the way I look, my the sound of my voice and all that, that dies and it doesn't come back. But my, I don't know if you want to say essence, that's sometimes problematic for people, but I'm, I'll just use it for convenience sake, but my essence is the ocean itself and the ocean doesn't die. The ocean just continues to wave, but it never waves the same wave twice. So through my meditation practice, and sometimes you, you might even think of meditation as um, you know, death preparation, you know, that, that it, it's preparing you to die because in meditation, one of the things that happens is that you're, you know, just in my case, you know, Rami disappears for a moment, however long that might be. But Rami disappears, and there's just the oceanic, and there's no, there's no me going, "Wow, this is so cool." It's just I'm gone. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, one of my teachers, Father Thomas Keating. So Father Thomas is a great Catholic mystic. Died a few years ago, and I've been a student of his since 1984 when he invited me to participate in this interspiritual contemplative group that he had put together. And I went to visit him as he was dying. Um, and I went to his monastery when he was still at Snowmass, Colorado. Now, he ultimately died in the monastery where he was an abbot in Western Massachusetts. But I went to see him at Snowmass and I went to say goodbye because we thought his time was, was near. It wasn't that long after that he died, but it wasn't as immediate as I expected. In any case, we sat and talked for about 45 minutes. And at one point, it just occurred to me that here I am with one of the great mystics of our time who's dying. What an opportunity to find out how do you do it? You know, what, what is this dying thing? So I asked him, I said, how are you I don't know, approaching your death or preparing to die, or I don't know how I actually put it, but how are you doing this dying thing? And he said, I'm dying the way I lived. And now this isn't video, but I'll try to describe it. So he's sitting in a wheelchair and Father Thomas is a very tall man and he's wearing uh, a wool cassock, white, sort of off-white and black. 
and he cups his hands like he would if you're going to drink water from a fountain. He cups his hands in his lap and he brings them up in front of his face. And he says to me, this is how I live my life. Every time Thomas came up, and that's when he raises his hands, that's going to be the, the Thomas. He raises his hands. Says, Every time Thomas comes up, I let Thomas go. And then he dropped his hands to his lap. And then he says, every time Thomas comes up, I let Thomas go. And he did that a couple of times. And he said, when I die, Thomas will come up. I'll let Thomas go. And Thomas just won't come back up again. And I thought, wow, I hope I can do that. Of course, you have to practice now. The Sufis have a saying, die before you die. You can't just wait to the last minute and go, come on, get those hands. You know, it doesn't work. But if you practice this through meditation, moving beyond the wave to the ocean, beyond the small S self to the large S self, you know, Atman, Brahman, there's language in different traditions. But if you practice doing this or prepare yourself for the grace of having that experience, then maybe you'll be ready when you die to, to experience it that way then. But I found it so powerful and so, I don't know if the word is hopeful, but so comforting that he was simply going back to the source from which he came, in which he lived and moved and had his being. It seems very comforting to me. And I, I have to say, at the beginning, when I started reading that chapter, I was a little scared because it, it questioned some of the beliefs that I had, or that I want to have that, oh, I'm going to see my loved ones again, or maybe I'll be an angel, or maybe I'll hang out on a cloud, or I'll be in, you know, all of those other stories and things that were told. And then when I read your description, I thought, well, well, this is kind of scary. You know, maybe that those things aren't going to happen. Those are just beliefs that I'm believing with no basis in any kind of fact, because I don't know. But then when I read the analogy of the ocean and the waves and returning to our source, it gave me a lot of comfort. So ultimately, as I <laughs> kind of rode the roller coaster through the chapter, and I felt comforted in that, in that feeling of just kind of being a, being a wave going back to the, the vastness yeah. of, of I whence mean, not, I not came, want, you know? Right. Not that I want to discomfort you again, but I, mean, I could be wrong. Right? <laughs> Father Thomas could be completely right, right. wrong. I could be wrong. So I'm not saying you, you don't become an angel or you won't, but you know, see, see loved ones. But when I talk about this with little kids, um, 12 year old, let's say, um, I, I do it with, with rope and I give the kids, each kid gets a piece of rope, maybe a foot long. And, I, and if anyone's going to try to do this, don't use nylon rope, go get cloth rope. And I give the kid a piece of rope and I say, tie a knot in the rope, which they do. And then we have a discussion on what's the relationship between the knot and the rope. And they're the same thing. The knot is the rope. There's, it's not like you staple the knot onto the rope. The knot is the rope in a specific configuration. Then I said, okay, so tie another knot in the rope. Leave the first one, now tie a second one. And they do that. And then we compare the two knots. And they're always, I mean, one's a little older in a sense. One's a little newer. One's usually tighter or bigger or softer. You know, the, people don't tie the exact same knot every time when you're 12 years old. And then I said, okay, let's label the knots. So, and, and I'll just keep it personal. So the, the first knot I tied is the quote, older knot. I'm going to call that my dad. He died a few years ago. The 
The second night, I'll just calm myself. So what's the relationship between these two knots? Well, we're clearly different. We're on different parts of the rope. Again, one might be higher, tighter, bigger, smaller, whatever it is. We have our unique uh, elements, but we're both just the rope. And then I say, let's untie, in my case, let's untie my dad's knot. Well, where does he go? The knot is gone. To the extent I loved his shape and his sound and his voice and you know all of that, uh, I miss that. I grieve for that. But where did he actually go? What is lost now that the knot is gone? Well, there's no, there was nothing added when the knot was there. There's no more rope then, and there's no less rope when it's the knot is untied. So first of all, we're still connected because we're all we're both the rope. The second thing is, and this is, I think, more speculative. The second thing is, is it possible, because we're both the same rope, is it possible for me to pick up on, I don't know, maybe we we use the word vibration. Is it possible to pick up on my dad's vibration uh, as part of this, a part of the rope, part of the ocean? It's my metaphors. And if I can, maybe I can feel his presence because like, you know, nothing is created, you know, matter isn't created or destroyed. It's, you know, matter, energy, all that. So, so uh, energy isn't created or destroyed. My dad is the energy of the rope. It's still in the rope. Can I feel his presence? Now, I may interpret that feeling in a specific way that comforts me. Uh, my mom does. She's convinced she has a different theology than I do, but she's convinced she's in contact with him. I never say no. But could it be that, given my theology, that she's just in touch with his resonance um, that the rope contains, and she interprets it to be still him? And I don't know. I don't know. So I don't want to say no to anything, but I want to put it in the context of the ocean and the wave or the rope and the knot so that we don't end up with... Uh, heaven and hell, and we don't end up with the saved and the damned, and we don't end up with a dualistic theology of God is something other, as opposed to simply being something greater, if that makes sense. That one, makes total one sense. Last, one last I love thing that. On this. One last thing on this is I do a lot of work in 12-step. I, I love 12-step, um, not only for me personally with addiction, but I think, and I've written two books about this, I think 12-step in itself is a spiritual practice, even if you don't have a brand-named addiction, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or Overeaters, whatever. Um, and in the 12-step world of the big book, you know, the, the I don't say Bible, but let's say the Bible of Alcoholics Anonymous that all of us use, regardless of the addiction, uh, that Bill W. wrote, he doesn't talk about a higher power, though people do in meetings talk about higher power. He talks about a greater power. And I'm not interested in a higher power. That's very dualistic to me. But I am ex- I experience a greater power. Now we're back to the ocean and the wave. I am part of that greater power. The way of wave is part of the ocean. So there are lots of ways to engage with this, That some secular, some religious, some spiritual, lots of ways to engage with this non-dual understanding of reality. I would argue, and I'll end with this, that that non-dual theology is crucial to getting beyond tribalism. 
Well, I love your explanation and it totally made sense to me. And I'm going to steal the ocean and the wave. And- oh, I did. Be my guest. <laughs> right. And I'm going to use that uh, as explanation. And actually, it was it was very meaningful for me to read that because I'm going to be sitting with someone soon who is on that path of, of transition, who's an old friend. And I've, I found it comforting. And I hope that that she will, too. And I I want her to to feel that. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the key when, whenever you work with someone and, and you know this, but whenever I would work with someone who's, who's dying, I just go with their theology, right? If they, whatever they want to believe, I'm happy. If they're struggling with it, I'm, I'm happy to share mine, but I'm not going to stick my nose in their, in their dying process. No, I, I agree. I just want to be present. Which yeah, yeah. one of the reasons I not that I named the podcast this, but <laughs> it kind of all comes full circle now. But I, I got a lot from from reading that in the book, and there's just there's so much in the book to spend time with and, and delve with, and I really hope that people do that. I, I recommend it wholeheartedly, and so I, I just kind of want to end with like, what are your hopes for the future? As it seems like we're swinging more and more into tribalism, and you're doing your best with the book and and your talks and teachings to keep us out of that, can this be reversed? No. I think that doesn't mean there's no hope, but the hope isn't for reversal. I think that we are in, I don't know if it's the middle or the early beginning, I I don't know where we are in in the process of um, what Christians might call the dark night of the soul, but on a global level. It's the Kali Yuga in a sense, from the, you know, using Hindu language, that we are <clears throat> experiencing a dark night, a crucifixion of human civilization. We're experiencing it uh, environmentally. The pandemic is a, is a part is part of it. The gun violence is part of it. The tribalistic uh, violence is part of it. I mean, we're we're going down, and the question is: Is that the end? Or is it something else? So, so my hope is, you know, in, in the West, we tend to think of, of history in a straight line, you know, it's, or maybe, you know, going up and going down. So either progress, we're getting better and better and better, or no, this is, we're doomed and it's just going to go into a dystopia and everything's going to be hellish. I think there's another way to look at it, and that is as a spiral. So, some people say, oh, it's like in the Hindu thing, it's, it's just a circle. So you start with a golden age and you work your way down to this uh, horrific period of the Kali Yuga and everything goes to hell. And then we start again with a golden age. I think it's a spiral. I think that there is a circular dimension to it and we're in the dark times. But if we go through it well, and I'll talk about that in a sec, if we go through it well, we come out having to face the same circle but at a higher level of consciousness. And the higher the level of consciousness, the broader the circle of compassion. So they go together. So I'm hopeful that we're in a spiral as opposed to, a, you know, just a complete uh, dystopian fall. But the key is, do you collapse mindfully or, you know, ignorantly? Do you collapse with consciousness and compassion or do you collapse ignorantly and, and with anger? It looks like we're going, you know, toward the anger in the anger route. But I think it's possible, both on an individual level and small community level, to create what Margaret Wheatley calls islands of sanity. 
And that's where you take it upon yourself to, to act in a certain way that creates compassion uh, and, uh, in, in the circle around which you have some influence. And if enough of us do that, we hit a tipping point <clears throat> that doesn't undo the, the fall that we're engaged in, but it allows the spiral to continue and, and move up and move out. I'm hopeful that that's what's happening, but it requires people to, to make the move. One of the things that we have to do is look to see where you're trapped in tribalism and get out. So that's really tough. You know, you, you could be a trap. You could be a Jewish person trapped in Jewish tribalism and you're, you're convinced that you're the chosen people and everyone else is, you know, whatever you're going to, you're going to say. <clears throat> it could be true for anyone in any religion. If you're caught in that religion in a patriarchal, tribalistic, misogynist, fundamentally violent against the other religion, um, you got to leave. You, you, you're not going to change the religion. You have to say, I'm out. Now, you may be able to find a liberal version of that religion. You may be able to move from Southern Baptist to Unitarian if you're a Christian, whatever, whatever it might be. But you have to get out. You can't sit there and say, I'm going to fix it, or I'm just going to trust God will fix it, because that's not how it works. So I think you have to free yourself from that negativity, that tribalism, the inherent violence that it carries. That's, that's one thing you have to do. Then I think you have to find contemplative practice in, a, in the tradition of your youth or you know, birth, or you find another tradition that speaks to you, but a practice that will open you to the, the aliveness and lead you to the golden rule in a positive way. And if you can do those two things, then I, I'm hopeful that uh, we come out of this a little more, com uh, more conscious and, and more compassionate, but there is no guarantee. <laughs> so you'll leave me with that. There is no guarantee. No, I, I love right. If I there was a this. guarantee, then you wouldn't have to do anything. You'd right, right. Then we wouldn't even it. have to talk about this. Yeah. Right? I, I'm so grateful to, to spend this time with you. And I've learned a lot from the book. I'm going to spend more time with it. I've actually sent it to uh, some people to read because I think it's important. It's important what you're doing. And I'd like you to be able to tell people where they can find you. Uh, hey, pick up Spirituality Today. Get your podcast. Spirituality and Health. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's anything Spirituality Today. Good name, though. Maybe you should start a magazine. Uh, yeah, we'll have to start something. Yeah, there's, there's three ways to, to follow. I mean, you can Google me. I'm, I'm sort of easily available. But my personal website is rabbirami.com. And that sort of explores the 36 books that I've written. Uh, you can go to spiritualityhealth.com, even though it's called Spirituality and Health Magazine. For some reason, they took the and out and their website is spiritualityhealth.com. You can subscribe to the magazine. I hope you would. It keeps the magazine going. It's a decent magazine. And you can uh, subscribe to the podcast, which, which is free. And the third thing you can do is, you know, my work with perennial wisdom, these islands of sanity that we call the Grand Lodge of All Beings. That is available. Information about that and how to participate in those uh, seminars is available on uh, the, the website One River Foundation. You have to spell it out O N E River Foundation, all one word, OneRiverFoundation.org. And that's basically how you. 
how to find you. See what I'm doing. We'll track you down. Thank you so much, Rabbi Rami. I really appreciate it. Diane, thank you. It was a delight. Life is hard, and sometimes you need a little help and guidance. I'm Laura West, host of a Guided Life podcast, and I believe that help is all around us. We just have to ask for it. The universe has a way of guiding us forward with the help of our past loved ones, angels, spirit guides, and ascended masters. On the podcast, I love to explore these ideas with incredible guests and let people know that they are never alone. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you can join me on this journey. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm network and wherever you get your podcasts.